Woo! I'm ready to preach. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our study of the book of Acts. We are going to unpack the entire chapter of chapter 6 in its entirety today. Last week, Karen did a great job of teaching us and asking us how in control is God of our lives. Today, we will see the apostles preparing for what will be a pretty big expansion of the church of the living God and the precursor to a sermon that will basically get the proclaimer killed. Spoiler alert. So let me tell a story that'll preface kind of what we're going to be studying today. Three pastors got together for coffee one day and found that all three of their churches had bat infestation problems. I got so mad, said one of the pastors, I took a shotgun and fired at them, and it made holes in the ceiling but did nothing to the bats. I tried trapping them alive, said the second, then I drove them 50 miles before releasing them, but they beat me back to the church. I haven't had any more problems, said the third pastor. What did you do, asked the other pastors, amazed. I simply baptized them and asked them to serve. He replied, and I haven't seen them since. So you know where the humor is going to be today. Let's begin in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days when the numbers, number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic or Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Complaining in the church. I do not believe it. That is my sarcasm voice. The reality is that according to Luke, until we read about Ananias and Sapphira, everything in the church, at least that was documented, seemed to have been spirit-led and wonderfully unified and Christ-exalting. But what we saw that week, and now we see in this passage, is people starting to think inwardly. And it's creating sideways motion that probably doesn't help the cause, but as we will see, God will use these things in some pretty profound ways for His glory. The Greek-speaking Jews complained that the Hebraic Jews were overlooking the Greek-speaking widows when it came to the distribution of food. So there were two different languages of the early church Jews that had been converted to Christianity. You had Hebraic Jews that had grown up in Jerusalem and had spoken Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew. And then there were the Hellenistic Jews that had been born away from Palestine and had learned Greek as their speaking language. NIV says complained. Some translations use the word murmured. Murmured uh, denotes the idea of complaining to people who can do nothing about it. More like gossip than constructive criticism. So the murmuring, the whispering, could be seen more as a commentary on the Hebraic Jews and their lack of care for the Greek-speaking Jews. Did you hear about the Hebraic Jews? They don't care about our widows. Mm, Yeah, and Stacy thinks she's so pretty. Like, this is what was taking place. (laughs) And this explains that it wasn't just them caring for their own widows and wanting fairness, but they were jealous of how the Hebraic Jews were taking care of their own while not thinking about anyone else. Jealousy was taking place, and all week I kept thinking about what Karen said last week regarding jealousy. She said this, you have what I want, I don't have it, so I hate you. And this is a common problem for mankind. We think because we don't have something the way someone else has it that we believe we are entitled to something. This may hurt a little bit. 
This week, I was talking with a leader, and we discussed where we both probably feel entitled to things. And it's this great microcosm of our, not just me and this other leader, but our sin nature. That is what taking place, that's what's taking place here. These Greek-speaking Jews feel overlooked, so they're murmuring and complaining, and it's a result of their sin nature. How many times have I felt entitled to something and murmured to people who had nothing to do with the solution, but I wanted to feel vindicated? Is it just me, or have you done that too? Come on, testify. Don't leave me on an island. Okay. Oh, I'm not alone. Yay. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. A few things with this passage. I was listening to a message regarding this text from decades ago, last century even. And while much of what the preacher was saying was spot on, he seemed to emphasize something that wasn't there. His point was that this murmuring was taking place, and then the apostles who were in charge took charge right away. Now, I agree they took charge, but the text doesn't emphasize right away. It doesn't say the timetable. It doesn't emphasize right away or a while longer. And so why is it important to bring up that I heard in someone else's sermon? Because the apostles are human. They, too, dealt with junk and sin and issues within the church, and they came up with a solution and coming out of the reasoning that their responsibility of the word and prayer was specific to their roles as apostles. Now, it's hard to read this verse without a bit of an assumption that the apostles were saying what they were saying with a bit of entitlement also, as if they were too good to wait on tables. But the more I studied this passage, the more another perspective seemed to come through over and over. Remember that these apostles had been in the upper room with the Lord Jesus. They had seen him on his knees. They had seen him wrap the towel around his waist, take a basin of water, and wash their filthy, dirty, stanky feet. They had heard his words in Luke 22 when he said, He that is the greatest among you must become a servant of all. They were not in any sense downplaying the ministry of serving tables. They made this decision on the basis of a difference in responsibility and gifting. A responsibility that the apostles had was to shepherd and lead the flock of gods through prayer and the teaching of the word, while testifying to Jesus' death, resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and salvation of our souls. The apostles became, became, with the prophets from the Old Testament, the foundation of the church. The prophets' writing, which represent the Old Testament, and the apostles that wrote and established the New Testament. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, the capital A, apostles, had a role and function that is not duplicated in the church today. While elders and pastors often have the responsibility of prayer and the word, we are not apostles. We often have responsibilities that are not only specific to the word and prayer. We unlock the doors today. That was part of it. And we definitely do not write scripture. And we share in the responsibility in the church because we, I hope, are not man-centered at COV. We strive to be Christ-centered. 
We strive to utilize the people of the church to serve and care for the flock, to take some ownership of the community, to buy in, and to see the church collectively, which is the people, not the steeple, as the bride of Christ. So each of you that have began to attend faithfully, each of you who have began to serve continually, each of you who participate in the work of the Holy Spirit at COV, you are important to God's church. If you set up tables, if you help on trustees, if you serve in children's ministry, if you give an offering, if you sing in the choir, there's practice after the service, or if you preach and proclaim the gospel from a pulpit, you, we, us, are part of something so much bigger than I think we realize. I heard a church pastor who will remain nameless, who was dealing with capacity limits and parking issues with the city because of the growth of their church. This was years ago. They said something like this, unless you're serving, you're taking up a seat. Wow. Now, I wouldn't say that. No, no, I wouldn't say that. Because I think that there are people here that are still kicking the tires of what this faith, faith thing is all about and are trying to figure out what they believe and why they believe it. But there are people who claim that they are mature Christians and belong to the church of the living God through salvation in Jesus Christ alone, but don't participate at all because they don't realize that serving and participating are actually vital to our spiritual growth and belonging in the body of Christ. So with that in mind, yeah, stop freeloading. We have plenty of seats. But your example isn't one that we want as the image of what a mature Christian looks like. We want people to buy in. We want people to engage. Why? Because our goal here is that we would look more like Jesus, and if we're doing nothing regarding putting care and effort into that responsibility, we're never going to look more like Jesus. We're just going to continue to do the same thing over and over and wonder why nothing's changing. It's also the definition of crazy. Now, we don't get to retire from serving or participating in the body of Christ. Your abilities and your responsibilities may change, but there is no retirement from serving Jesus Christ in this life. So what did the apostles who were leading the church and had the responsibility of praying and administering the word of God uh, tell the flock to do? Here's what they said, verse three. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Remember that. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Choose seven men among you. Why seven? Well, some people would be like, that number symbolizes completion. Nope, I don't think it had anything to do with that. Sorry, guys, there's no Da Vinci Code. I think it had to do with the current size of the flock and how many men there were to help manage and serve in this way so that the apostles could focus on their responsibilities. The expectation of these men, we call them deacons, were to be full of the Spirit, or as we have discussed before, dominated by the third person of the Trinity, meaning that they were walking in obedience and progressing in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and that they were full of wisdom. This doesn't mean white beards and big words. This means men who knew the Word of God and had experience applying the Word that they knew to their actual lives. Why have these expectations of deacons who would just be moving around tables in some people's minds? 
Because a deacon exists not only to be custodial, but to see the needs of the people and collectively find ways to address those needs with the resources that are available within the community. And being full of the Spirit and of wisdom is because far too many people serve in this category within the church, unfortunately aren't seen as spiritual servants, but just physical servants. And if you're serving in this role, maturity and understanding why you're doing what you're doing and who you are serving when you do what you do is of first importance. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose, now, okay, real quick, there's some names up here, and, and Daniel said them with confidence. I have no idea if he's right, and I have no idea if I'm right. I'm going to say it with confidence, but don't tease me, Okay? <laughs> and, and first off, we're going to talk about a guy named S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Now listen, Daniel said Stephen, okay? I'm a Warriors fan. That's Stefan, just saying. So get used to it. <laughs> they chose Stefan, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a covert to Judaism. Daniel's like, nope. All right, that's fine. What was interesting about who got chosen from among them, which most assume meant both the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, they chose seven Greek Jews to serve in this way. So even though many of the Greek-speaking Jews were murmuring and complaining, they still found seven men that were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We'll hear much more about Stephen in the next chapter and Philip in the chapter after that. If you want to see how we choose deacons, you can look it up. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 through 13. That's what we look for when we're choosing deacons in this place. Verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Seems so insignificant. Evidently, these men were elected by the congregation, and they were called before the apostles who laid their hands upon them. That indicates that the apostles were identifying with their ministries. In the Old Testament, whenever a Hebrew brought a lamb or a bull or any type of animal to be sacrificed, he first laid his hands upon it, by which he said, this animal and I are identified. My sins are laid upon him, and his blood shed for me as my own blood being shed. In other words, it's a very dramatic way of saying to God, there's nothing in me that merits anything in your sight. I have lost my life before you. I have nothing to offer. It is exactly the same truth that we learn in the New Testament. We do not come offering God anything. We come as guilty and lost and hopeless sinners saying, Lord Jesus, you must save me. I can do nothing to save myself. This is what the Old Testament practice of laying on of hands meant. In the New Testament, it was carried on into the body of Christ as an act of identification. These apostles were saying, these seven men whom you have chosen, who have the gifts and qualifications we outlined, are part of our ministry as apostles, and we are part of theirs. We belong in the body together, and in the body, every gift is important. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
So look at that verse. It's kind of a big deal. Why did this happen? Now, there are a lot of practical answers, and if you want to debate, we ain't got time for it, but if you want to, I'm going to show you some of the practical answers, and then I'm going to tell you the right answer. You ready? Here we go. Because unity was being pursued within the church. That's a good practical answer. Because people were serving and participating. Really good answer. Because people were working within their gifting and responsibilities. Great practical reasoning. All of those probably have some truth to them. But I want to emphasize something different, which I always emphasize. It's that God's work and sovereignty supersedes man's effectiveness. God's work and sovereignty supersedes man's effectiveness. So who gets the glory? Who is responsible? Who should we look to when the church is thriving and growing and making disciples? God and his beautiful will. So if the glory and praise goes to our king, what difference does it make what his people do? What is our responsibility? It's to be faithful to obey. That's our responsibility, church, to be faithful to obey, plain and simple. Faithful, synonyms are consistent, dedicated, devoted, unwavering, steadfast, constant, trusted. Here's one I like, committed. I am committed to my wife and children. I am committed to my God. I am committed to my church. To what? To obey. Well, I don't obey my kids. Please don't tell them that that was my point. But to obey my God and to do what my God says is how I ought to love my wife. To do what my God says is how I ought to raise my children. Do I do it right all the time? Not even today. But I'm pursuing righteousness. It's not about what we do or it's not about what we do to obey, as if there's this itemized checklist of how to be a good Christian. This might be hard for some of us to understand, but a good Christian is an oxymoron. I didn't call you a moron. What I'm saying is, a good Christian is an oxymoron, because a Christian is someone who actually knows they're not good on their own, and need God's grace and intervention to make them right before God, which is known as righteousness. But it's about whom we obey. And whom do we obey? God at his word. So we're obedient to obey. And the book of Acts is this descriptive letter of how God established and grew his church across the world. But what is prescriptive is that these disciples of Jesus that were reproducing disciples of Jesus, here's what they did. They spread the word of God. Now, I don't know what your mind thinks of when you hear the word of God spread. Maybe you think that they set up seminary classes were popping up all over the continent. Not likely. But really, the gospel was being communicated. The good news of Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection from the dead was being connected to and applied to the very scriptures that the Jews had grown up and had been taught, that they had learned often. And for the students of rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees and priests, the scriptures that they had memorized were pointing back to the gospel. This is why Luke points out that many of the priests became obedient to the faith as they knew more and more of the scriptures, at least intellectually, than the other people. And the reality is that the gospel, 
the good news of Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, the reality that because he died, we could be made alive in him, the resurrected king, that gospel, it's for all types of people. Studious, diplomat, ignorant, CEOs, day workers, the gospel applies to our human condition, not just our professions. The good news of Jesus finished the wor- is finished work makes a person who was self-reliant understand that being Christ-reliant is the only way to come into relationship with God. So we are not self-reliant when we understand the gospel. We are Christ-reliant. And so Luke points out what was happening. Through faithful obedience and the work of the Holy Spirit, and then transitions to what started to happen as the religious leaders of the time were not swayed by the gospel, nor wanted to hear anything that took away from their authority and argued with their opinions. Here's what it says, verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Joey Lawrence, whoa, What an explanation of an individual, this deacon, this man who some considered less than because as a deacon, they were a servant who would care for the widows and be hospitable and custodial, and yet God uses Stephen to preach the longest documented sermon in the New Testament. And as we will see more next week, that God had a message and event to glorify himself and to spread his church far and wide through the rest of the world. But it was going to be done through the boldness of a deacon who through the work of the Spirit was going to proclaim, he was going to offend, and he was going to defend the gospel. And in an earthly sense, it doesn't work out that well for him. But eternally, he becomes a spiritual hero to us all. But no spoilers. That's next week. Or you can read ahead. Stephen was also identified by the great wonders and signs through the Holy Spirit performed to confirm the laying on of hands through the apostles and the ministry that God was uniquely doing through this man. But as we will see, where there is gospel, there is opposition. Sometimes it's subtle, and sometimes it's obvious. It's going to be obvious. Verse 9, opposition arose, see? However, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Sicilia, we'll see, I don't know, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen was one of those Greek-speaking Jews called the Hellenists in this account, one who had been born in another country and who spoke not Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek. He was among those who had committed to Christ through the preaching of the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. And they were in the city of Jerusalem, a number of synagogues that had been formed by these Greek-speaking Jews from various parts of the world. To these synagogues, Stephen evidently went and preached in Greek, thus giving testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ. Luke records five of these synagogues. One was the synagogue of the freed man. This synagogue was founded by the Jews who had been slaves in Rome in the Roman Empire and had later been set free. Freed man. See what he did there? 
Then there were the two groups from Africa, the synagogues of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. Also, there were two from what we presently call Asia Minor, Minor or Turkey, and Sicilia, Cilicia, and Asia, two of the Roman providences of that day. Now, the capital of Cilicia was Tarsus. And I don't think it's a stretch to assume that in the synagogue was a young man named Saul of Tarsus, who was among those who opposed the message of Stephen when he was preaching about Jesus Christ. Saul also was among those whom it said here, but they could not stand up to the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Here was this brilliant young Jew, Saul of Tarsus, later to become the apostle Paul, who as a Jew was definitely agitated and opposed to the things that he heard Stephen say about Jesus Christ. He arose and he disputed, but he could not answer Stephen. That must have been a shot to this young man's ego, that he could not answer him from the Scriptures since Saul prided himself as an authority on Scriptures because he had sat at the feet of the most important and best teachers of the day. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So these religious leaders were stumped. They could not go toe-to-toe with Stephen's explanation of the Scriptures. So what did they do? What most sinful and prideful people do when losing an argument. They just attempt to talk louder, and they shouted, and when that didn't work, they lied, and they used methods of deceit to attempt to convince others that this person lacks credibility because they had heard that Stephen spoke blasphemy against Moses in God. It's interesting the order in which it's explained in, as if Moses was more important to the people than God. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, this scene, it's escalating pretty quickly. False witness and groupthink are beginning to take over, ironically, just like it did with Jesus, with some of the same people involved and present, and the same quick and unjust trial of popular opinion was being called to condemn a follower of Jesus in Stephen. Now, what was he doing? Stephen was accused of threatening the establishment, represented by the temple and the priesthood, and of attempting to change the status quo and what everyone was comfortable with. He probably did quote Jesus when Jesus said he would rebuild the temple in three days, but this alluded to his resurrection and how we, the people of Jesus, are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when asked about the charges that he was being accused of, it couldn't just be a yes or no, because the things that they were accusing him of had a little bit of truth to them, but contextually had a completely different implication. So we will see Stephen retort in the longest documented sermon in the Scriptures next week as we will study this amazing sermon and the response of the religious leaders as they show their disgust against God and His redemptive plan of salvation. Verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen 
and they saw his face, and his face was like the face of an angel. Oh, that sounds nice. But I think this implies a glorious setting upon Stephen's face. It could also imply the reality that even though he was being tried for a crime that he didn't commit, he was cool, he was calm, he was collected, not because he had confidence that nothing would happen to him, but had full confidence and trust in the fact that no matter what, God has got him. And God ultimately would get glory, and Stephen was serving God and defending and proclaiming the gospel to some of the most studious men in all of Jerusalem who were in desperate need of hearing the gospel and by faith trusting their identities to Jesus. But spoiler, this isn't what happens, at least immediately after Stephen's sermon. But like the wisdom of Joseph speaking to his brothers back in Genesis 50, After they intended to have him sent away and enslaved and eventually killed, Joseph, after becoming one of the most powerful men in all the land, says this to them when they meet him again later on. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How prophetic. And as we will read next week, And hear the aftermath of the response to the sermon spoken through Stephen. What man intends for evil, God can and does use for his glory. So I want you to look at that point. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about stuff that maybe has happened in your life where people were coming against you, they were falsely accusing you. Maybe you went, were dealing through some type of sickness. I don't know. But what man intends for evil, God can and does use for his glory. People always ask me, why do bad things happen? Now, the real answer is sin. Close your Bible. (laughs) But not punitive sin. Not like, well, I did this, so then this happens to me. That's karma, and grace destroys karma. No, bad things happen because sin entered into the fray before you were even a thought in your parents' minds. We're all born into it. We all do it. We all need a solution that isn't just us trying to be a good person, because guess what? We're not. But the other reason bad things happen, not necessarily the cause that sin But the way in which God uses it is to mold and refine us more into his son's image. At the age of three, I was kidnapped by my mom and told that my father was dead. When I was four years old, my mom went to prison. While she was in prison, she attempted to kill herself. She failed. When I was eight, my mother died of cancer. By the time I hit sixth grade, I had been expelled from three schools, primarily for fighting. Don't tell my kids. At the age of 13, I moved away from all my friends and started to live in Santa Clara. When I was the age of 17, my father moved away, leaving me to fend for myself. At the age of 18, I was almost tried and convicted of a felony. When I was 27 years old, I watched my two-and-a-half-year-old firstborn daughter have a 30-minute seizure in front of me, and I thought she was brain dead. 
When I was 30 years old, my father passed away from a heart attack. I'm 41 years old now, and I have lost friendships and seen close friends of mine move away. I've seen one of my groomsmen die from complications of COVID and a heart attack. My marriage hasn't always been perfect. Our kids haven't always been angels. Leading a church sometimes feels like I'm going to have an ulcer or a stroke, but you know what? I wouldn't change a thing. Because through all of that, God has always been faithfully refining me more into his image. In the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And this life hurts. Matthew, earmuffs. This life hurts like hell sometimes. But God is in the business of growing alive things. And I praise him that I am alive in him. So let's give the glory where the glory is due. Your life may be difficult. Struggles may be coming fast and furious right now. There might be a diagnosis that you've gotten or will get in the future that feels like everything in your life is changing and the world is closing in on you. But don't discount the fact that God can and will use it for his glory to make much of the name of Jesus. And we get to be a part of that in how we respond and how we testify to his grace. Malik, come on up. Let's pray. Lord, the, the breath I take to this moment is because you willed it. And I am honored to breathe this breath for you. God, I don't know what tomorrow will look like. I don't know what next week, next month, next year, next decade will feel like, but I know you are good and you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so we as a people, I pray that we would not sweat the reality that, yeah, this life's hard and it's not necessarily because we did anything to deserve the hardness, but the reality is that because of sin, all of our sin, we're in a broken place. There's a chasm between us and you. And the only way we can be made right is by receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our God. I'm broken, Father. And I don't assume I'm the only one. And I'm in need of grace, grace to take this breath, grace to love my neighbor, grace to care for my family and to care for others. So God, I pray that you would do a work in the hearts of your people today. I pray you would draw those who are yet to receive you as Lord to yourself. I pray that you would draw some of us who have received you and have been apathetic in our faith, that you'd spur us on to be reminded of how good it is to know you. God, as we sing praises to your name, would you get the glory? Would you get the glory as we leave this place and put into practice what we've heard? Would you get the glory as we get real with you, God? We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.